0: Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Tuesday, March 7th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by senior analyst Khaviv Retigur and environmental reporter Sue Serks. Hello, good morning, and happy Purim to you both, but really only Purim for Khaviv. Good morning, Jessica.
1: Good morning.
0: Good morning. So it is Purim in most of Israel, not yet in Jerusalem. And the news is still, of course, focused primarily on the overhaul Uh, The latest line of protest to the governmental judicial overhaul is now coming from IDF from Israel Defense Forces Reservists, and we'll talk about that. We'll also look at the Mediterranean Sea and what's happening to it after the tar spill two years ago, a hill of lupine flowers in Jerusalem, and something about pickleball. Before we jump into all of that, let's take a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Saracheck Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Saracheck's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis so they're only compensated when they succeed. Haviv, there are growing threats from Israeli reserve soldiers, Israeli reservists, as protests against the overhaul spread to the IDF. And now a senior Likud minister tweeted last night that they can go to hell. Where are we on this? And where do you see this building to or perhaps getting contained? What do you think is going to happen here?
2: Right. What should we make of it? There's the growing willingness um, on the center-left to refuse military service, to refuse reserve duty. What's interesting about it, and of course, the right has, has decided it wants to paint it, Uh, Certainly government ministers, uh, there's been a a long stream of them commenting on this over the last week, uh, to paint it as a kind of disloyalty, a a shirking of national responsibility, and also to compare it to the refusal of military service that didn't happen in the past from the right. That has been a recurring theme. It's, it's not true, uh, that has to be said. During the disengagement from Gaza, there were many, many calls for um, for refusal of service. And the army also uh, had a quiet policy of allowing soldiers from settlements, soldiers from the religious Zionist community who might oppose the disengagement, from just sort of sitting it out quietly, being assigned somewhere else without creating a big dust-up. That was a, a standing policy that the army employed uh, very successfully at the time, uh, and a few years back, I think it was 2009, if I'm not mistaken, um, Bital Smotrich, the current finance minister, back when he was a very loud uh, complainer about um, you know the, the the gender issues taking over the Israeli army, where generals wanted to see if women could uh, serve in more and more combat units, um, what he called the postmodernism that is taking over the army. He actually called back then for mass refusal of service until the army stopped trying to allow women into into military units. And so, refusal of service is a recurring theme on left and on right. Of course, it's, we've seen it from the activist left on, on uh, questions of the occupation. Um, and obviously, it is, right? This is a society with a fairly large military, and, and, and service is a normative experience of many, many people, and their politics are expressed there. But what's happening now, I think, is a little bit different and a little bit strange and takes some explaining. Because Mm. The main problem isn't just the numbers, and the numbers are surprisingly high. Um, Also, it's, it's not just the elite units that they come from, especially in the Air Force and the commando units. What the army is worried about is that this is the beginning, this is the tip of the iceberg. And the and, and the army has expressed this worry. Uh, the chief of staff has called some of these pilots or the head of the Air Force has spoken with some of these people announcing they'll refuse. That is not ordinary behavior for people refusing. There is an attempt by the army... To calm down this 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 rebellion um, before it really becomes a real problem, um, the army needs its reservists, especially the elite ones who are hard to train and hard to replace, um, and th- and the army is afraid that what we're seeing now in public is the tip of the iceberg. And when the call goes out for you to come to serve. Many, many Israelis won't,
0: including rank and file reservists. in other words, including is that the fear? rank
2: and file mm-hmm. reservists because it is normalizing a sense that if I disagree with something the Army is being sent to do, why should I do it? right? and And that is what's something the Army fears a great deal because a great, many soldiers, uh, have qualms about service in the, for example, West Bank, or a great many soldiers might have qualms about service in in signals listening and cyber units. Um, uh, they're, they're, it's easy to see how you would have qualms in those kinds of units. And, and what happens when the army suddenly loses a third of those soldiers? Uh, what happens literally to national defense, to the army's capabilities? Um, and so the fear is not that some of these people are refusing military service and how dare they. And, you know, Likud ministers, of course, don't miss an opportunity to posture and grandstand um, because it's the only thing really left to them in a party where there is no internal debate. There is no serious substantive debate on the judicial overhaul or the state budget or anything. Right. But the real fear is that this is mainstream. The real fear is that this is going big. And that takes explaining. It's not enough to say it's the fall of democracy and they fear that their democracy is falling and so they're gonna refuse to serve. For one thing, if your democracy is falling, why would you refuse to serve in the military that protects the very country that it, when you when you have an internal domestic crisis of democracy, you fight on the street, you protest, you demonstrate, you vote, you do all the things you do in terms of your internal politics. Right. But if an enemy attacks, if an Iranian nuke detonates 300 meters over Tel Aviv, you're not fighting for any democracy. And in the, in the, right? there's, there's how? Why would you stop serving in the military if you're, if, you know, in a country that has real enemies and real national security problems? And these are long-standing elite soldiers who believe that this country really is threatened and needs their help. So why would they suddenly announce that they no longer believe that?
1: Kaviv, do you not think that if there were a war with Iran or an attack by Iran that they would turn up? And that the reason that they're threatening is that they feel that the protests are not really having the desired effect. And this is huge leverage.
2: I'll say more than that. I have more than a few friends who are declaring that they won't serve in the reserves. And I have a very strong suspicion, and they have a very strong suspicion, that at the moment of truth, they actually will. One of the secrets to a massive reserve army, the way of the type that Israel has, is that the service isn't just for the military's needs. People do it out of a sense of belonging, out of a tremendous amount of self-interest. It costs you a lot of money and a lot of time to go spend three and a half, four weeks uh, in the military in the middle of your life. But you have this bonding time with, with, with close friends of many years. It's a separation from ordinary life that makes coming back into ordinary life genuinely a more wonderful experience you get a sense of dignity and self-worth, you're protecting your community, your people, your family, you don't abandon it or you don't threaten to abandon it unless you're saying something very deep. And I think that what these Israeli soldiers are saying, and I think that the reason everyone is suddenly very worried about a few letters of protest, is that it isn't just about these momentary politics. I think that the driving force is the is 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 the deeper layer of the judicial overhaul the thing that actually has everyone viscerally exercised and and worried there is on the right the central message of right wing politics of right of of this government of right wing rhetoric of the media of right wing elites over the last 15 years has been the accusation that the left the center left maybe even parts of the liberal right Ashkenazi Israel is how it's framed sometimes, is hegemonic, is privileged, and is oppressive. And it is this kind of elite. This group of Israel, this half of Israel that has always just thought of itself as the country, is now being accused by the, the main rhetoric, the main political thrust and argument of the political right, is now being accused of not being the same as the Israeli people, of not being the same as the Jewish people, but in fact being an elite that is outside of it and is oppressive. Um, Gadi Taub is a, a public intellectual on the right who wrote a book called Mobile and Immobile about an oppressive elite that belongs to the globalized elite that is very mobile and a landed, of course, right wing people, authentic and grounded with nowhere to go. Avishai Ben Chaim is this uh, journalist and intellectual doctorate on, uh, he did a doctorate on Shas, who wrote a book called Second Israel, and he posits on primetime television day after day, week after week for years now That there is a first Israel, Ashkenazi Israel, and there is a second Israel oppressed by this hegemonic, he uses the word hegemonic, first Israel. This is a, a, a kind of intellectual argument borrowed deeply, heavily borrowing from the American left or from many, many populist movements, including maybe parts of the European populist right. And it is a cultural assault, it is a political assault. On that left center, left slash liberal, or whatever you call that, opposite who, the people represented by the current mm-hmm. opposition. If you combine that rhetoric and that. Just almost a generation of trying to frame them as an as as something other than part of the people, as something oppressive, as something that has hurt this country, and you combine it with the political marginalization that they've discovered over the last five elections. The point that they they, they also can't enter power, they cannot sit in power, and the and the the substance of the campaign against them. There isn't a, a profound policy difference between Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, Yair Lapid, but you combine. The political marginalization and the substantive argument that is this cultural assault, and they have internalized those things as a transformation into what we call in Israel a migzal, a sector or a tribe or a community. The ultra orthodox think of themselves not as part, not as the country, but as a sector, as a migzal, and therefore they can have profoundly irresponsible politics. They can avoid military service on mass. They can avoid participation in the workforce en masse. They can impoverish themselves, and they can do that for their cultural and religious choices, which I respect those choices, but they still enjoy state-of-the-art healthcare system and many, many, you know, very, very long uh, lifespan and all of that. Uh, The religious Zionist community can organize itself on settlement movement, on other narrow interests. They serve in the state. They do serve everyone, but they also think of themselves as a sector. The Israeli center-left is becoming a sector. And that is a breaking point, and that is a profound moment of, of, of feeling that either they are abandoning the country, the country's abandoned them, they're being relegated to something small and minor. And so this refusal is going to grow and it's going to hurt. And the the the, the ability of people to see themselves as part of the country and devoted to the country and serving themselves when they serve the country is going to shrink. And, and and it is the cost that we're going. We're starting to pay, and it'll only get worse for the kind of tribal politics that drive both this government and I think right wing rhetoric over the last quite a few years. Not just right wing rhetoric, but this is a moment where that's happening on the
0: right. Okay, thanks for that, Chaviv. Definitely food for thought, and uh, we'll obviously keep on going and discussing this as it changes and moves and shifts over the coming days and weeks. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Sue will tell us about what is happening on the environmental front, including the tar spill in the Mediterranean two years ago.
3: Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein-Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniel, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kertzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts we privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times.
0: Okay, Sue, so, so it was two years ago that there was a major tar spill in the Mediterranean, threatening marine life, launching a major cleanup. Where do we stand? What Where does the Mediterranean stand, really, at this point in time?
1: So just to refresh our memories... Uh, We're talking about just over two years ago in mid-February, Israel was taken by surprise when tar started rolling in from the Mediterranean Sea during a storm. And during the course of hours and days, that tar coated most of the coastal uh, beaches, killing wildlife along with it. You remember the thousands of volunteers who went to help clean up. I mean, we were among them. And that incident was headline news for some time. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he was the Prime Minister then, has now visited the beaches, set up a special committee to look at what could be done better next time. He provided uh, 45 million shekels, then worth around $14 million, mostly to the local authorities to clean up. But after all of that hand-wringing, and there was a lot of hand-wringing, it transpires that the Marine Unit of the Environment Ministry, which is responsible for these kind of events, hasn't received an additional dime. And that's despite its requests for years for more staff and for two more emergency coastal stations. And it's despite that committee, that high level committee recommending that the ministry get those staff and stations and extra equipment. The other thing that hasn't been dealt with, um, and bills have been presented several times since 2008 is the need to pass a law that gives the environment ministry authority to manage an oil disaster and to make sure that bodies like the local authorities Design and regularly update their marine preparation plans. Now, the Environment Ministry is hoping some money will come from a compensation claim regarding that spill, but who knows when that will be?
0: Hmm. Okay. And sticking to similar subjects, somewhat. Uh, I know that you're also you've also been researching and exploring what is happening with Lupine Hill in Jerusalem.
1: This site is called Mitzpetel, which in Hebrew means a lookout and a hill, but when you say it together, it actually means raspberry juice. That's a rather nice name, uh, <laughs> Mitzpetel. This yeah. has become a favorite site in spring for people from all over the city and, and probably beyond. It's an empty plot of ground on a hill between two neighborhoods Jewish East Al-Piyot and Palestinian Jebel Mukaba. And in the fall, it's covered in sea squills, which is the sign of uh, the sign of autumn and a huge variety of wildflowers in spring, among them the blue lupin, which everybody loves because much of the hill uh, turns indigo blue. And that's happening now. Now, from this hill, you can see the Temple Mount and Herod's tomb in the Judean desert. And on a good day, you can see down to the Dead Sea and even to Jordan. And this site is really a green backyard for local residents. There are activities taking place there throughout the year. But now the planners have green-lighted the building of a very large multi-storey police complex and the residents, of course, are up in arms. The District Planning Committee approved it on Sunday and ordered that it be reduced in height by six metres. So it doesn't actually block the view. It'll stand on a lower part of the hill, but you Mm. will have to look through it and through a 30-metre antenna also to see the uh, hill. And at night, presumably, it's going to be, you know, very, very intensively uh lit up despite the fact that there are houses very very nearby the planners say the station is needed it'll also house border guards a border police who are concerned with fighting terrorism there is a small temporary police post just near the hill uh, where a hotel is going to be built and that was actually requested by the residents after the gaza war in 2014 but they say they never expected a monstrosity like the one that's just been approved Mm. and there are a lot of people opposed to it it's actually one of many campaigns being waged all over the city to protect urban nature sites because, as those of us who live in Jerusalem know, construction is going on at breakneck speed and green space is disappearing all the time. If you want to go there, just to say that this month on Thursdays and Fridays there are activities, there's a Lupin Festival at the end of the month on March 30th and 31st, go to the Mitspetel website and you'll get all the info.
0: Thanks for that, Sue. It's true. It is absolutely glorious. And just for something quick and also a little on the lighter side uh, about pickleball, the game that is was created in Seattle uh, about two decades ago, combines table tennis, a little bit of tennis, squash, and is played with a sort of squash ball racket. It was a story that uh, my boss, David Horowitz, had asked me to do months ago. I had only seen it played in the US, and it turns out that, that is the inspiration for many of the players here, some of whom are American immigrants or were visiting the US and stopped being played. It hasn't actually caught on here yet, really fully. I did try playing it at Kibbutz Sora outside of Jerusalem, where a group of mostly retirees play it most mornings in their former dining hall, since their kibbutz was privatized and they needed a cooler place in the hot months, and the dining hall was available. Pickleball sent me to other sports being played by people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, including walking soccer, which was created in the UK for those who love the sport, but can't really run around now. And it actually, in Israel, includes many former professional players who have some great skills, of course, but not all of them are able to run either. So there's a little bit of tension there between people who were never great soccer players, but can play on this league and the former professionals who are playing with the same players but there seem to be having a good time with it. If you are looking for a game in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv does have pickleball played in Jaffa and a court in Jaffa, but in Jerusalem it is not being played yet and if you want to try and have a hand talking to the local tennis center to give up a quarter two during the day, so far they haven't been interested. That is it for us for today. Thank you very much, Sue and Javi, for being with us this morning. Pleasure.
2: Thank you, Jessica.
0: And uh, wishing anyone who is celebrating a happy Purim today and uh, a good listen and a good day. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad
2: Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this this out-of-this-world music.
0: You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom.